is the wilderness this romantic place that we often think about it? Or is there also a rawness to it? Is it also a challenge to overcome certain aspects of our own selves when we're in the wilderness? This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Mason here. Uh, Hope you had a good weekend. Y'all know that we love the Adventure Sports Podcast community. And we worked out a special deal with a company called Backpackers Pantry. They make backpacking meals, uh, dehydrated and freeze-dried food, and they are the leaders in the industry, make the most incredible meals. They have over 50 options, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, all of that. And if you are a listener to the Adventure Sports Podcast, you can get 25% off your order at Backpackers Pantry by going to backpackerspantry.com. Uh, and using the promo code ADVENTUREsports25. Uh, the link to that and the specific code will be in the show notes. And yeah, if you need to order some backpacking meals for an upcoming trip or you just want to load up, it's for a limited time and it's limited to 100 users. So please go on Backpackers Pantry and use the code and get 25% off your order. All right, here's the episode. Hello and welcome again to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. I have Ari Schneider on the line today, and he has a fun story to tell as well as a book to tell you about. Uh, after his junior year at university, Ari felt the need to take a kind of an extensive adventure trip, and out of that trip came a lot of, uh, I think, introspection and self-discovery, and and he wrote a book about it, and we're going to be talking about the book today, Where the Wind Heals is the name of the book. And so, Ari, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Sure, man. So you mentioned that you are a climber, you're a backcountry skier, and an outdoor educator, so you've been teaching climbing and skiing for a while. Yeah, so I've been an athlete for uh, about a decade now, and it started when I was in high school. I was a competitive freestyle skier, and so after I graduated, uh, I took a job coaching for the same program that I came out of, and I was uh, coaching strength and conditioning as well as on-hill training for uh, freestyle skiers, and then through college, I actually taught outdoor education classes at Tufts University. Uh, which was where I really fell in love with outdoor education. Graduated and went on to uh, to uh, take some courses through the American Mountain Guides Association, get a wilderness first responder, all that sort of stuff. And uh, I haven't been actively teaching recently, but I have been incorporating my background in outdoor ed into a lot of my writing. Uh, and uh, actually, Last year, I came out with a book called Outdoor Leadership in Education, which was based on an outdoor leadership class I taught at Tufts University a few years ago. So another book, Outdoor Leadership, say it again. Uh, Outdoor Leadership and Education. And Education. Yeah, and it's just a short little, uh, I think it's about 90 pages, short little book. um, And it's just based off uh, the curriculum for an outdoor leadership class I taught. Very cool. Well, we actually it's kind of like our life experiences cross in some strange ways here. And let me explain why I mean by that. First of all, my wife's maiden name is Schneider. 
<laughs> so we're probably related by marriage somehow in some distant, you know, some knows, distant yeah. way. Who knows, right? So that's a fun one. Uh, but another one is that uh, my two older children both went through an outdoor leadership program their junior year in high school, and they got dual enrollment credit, college credit for doing that, in which they were trained in outdoor leadership, and now you're the writer of the book for it, so that's pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. I want to get to the, uh, I guess, the story that is the book, and it all starts back at Tufts University around the time you were finishing up your junior year, and uh, take us there, tell us what the motivation was for this trip, and what was going on in your world. Yeah, so... um... Last week, I just released a book that I've been working on for the past couple years that is called Where the Wind Heals, and it's based on a road trip I took from Boston to the north coast of Alaska with my best friend, Uh, and that all started um, back my junior year in college. Um, I was definitely going through a rough patch, uh, and I had some relationship troubles with my girlfriend at the time, and uh, we ended up breaking up. I was pretty sad. And uh, I just needed to run away. And my best friend also felt like he needed to run away at the time, too. And so we packed up my small little Subaru Impreza. We built a wooden platform uh, on the back in the back seat. We just kind of crammed it in there. Uh, Zephyr, my, my best friend at the time, he's still my best friend, we, uh, we crammed it in the back seat with all of our stuff. We slept back there and uh, ended up driving all the way up to the north coast of Alaska uh, and we stopped and tried to climb as many of the beautiful mountains that we encountered along the way. Cool. So the, uh, I guess the reason for the trip was you just felt the need to, to escape what was going on a little bit and have a new experience. I, you know, you hear that quite a bit. People just get fed up with the way things have been going and they're like, I have to just clear my head. So was that, am I right, that that was really the driver behind this? Well, I think that's a, a big part of it. Um, I, if I had been totally happy in Boston at the time, um, I might have still gone on this, on this trip. Uh, but I think my mindset at the time uh, really shaped how the trip ended up. And Zephyr and I, we're, we're very adventurous people. We're the kind of people that would just be uh, sitting in a living room one day and say, hey, I wonder how far away from here we can drive. And then a few weeks later, just get in the car and do it. Uh, But this is also an escape for us. And we both needed to get out of Boston. uh, And it wasn't, I think uh, being at college, uh, university was not a very healthy place for me. Uh, And I think for a lot of people, that's the case. So getting out into the wilderness just seemed like the most logical escape and driving somewhere that, is actually as far away from Boston as you can possibly drive. Uh, <laughs> at first we thought, hey, maybe we'll drive to South America, but it turns out there's this thing called the Darien Gap, right. uh, 100 miles of wilderness, so you have to take a ferry around it, and we, we thought taking a ferry would be cheating. So we, <laughs> we drove to the north coast of Alaska instead. Oh, that's fun. So when you say north coast of Alaska, where, I mean, Alaska is a big place. Where did yeah. you end up? Yeah, Prudhoe Bay. So, uh, um, once you hit Fairbanks, that's the start of something called the Dalton Highway. And it's really just an access highway to the North Slope, uh, where they're doing a lot of drilling for oil. 
uh, you get up to Prudhoe Bay, which is on the north coast of Alaska, and you actually can't quite get to the north coast because it's all run by oil companies. There's a lot of red tape, um, and so you do need to pay a lot of money to get on a bus, uh, which tourists do, to actually go up and touch the coast. But I think uh, Zephyr and I stopped just at the end of the, the highway. We figured that was close enough. Um, okay. So from where you were, could you see the Arctic Ocean? Yeah, we could. We could. And we could see a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, tundra and uh, a lot of oil rigs. Uh, it wasn't. It definitely was not the most beautiful scenery, and I will admit, Zephyr and I took no photos from the north coast of Alaska. <laughs> and actually, we took one, and it was a photo of uh, the gas prices up there, which I believe were almost six dollars a gallon, uh, which I think is kind of ironic because that's where they're drilling for the oil. But of course, it needs to get shipped down the pipeline and then uh, refined and brought all the way back up. But I, I joke about uh, this in my book. I, I say something like uh, that Apple ought to be cheaper on the orchard. <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know, the funny thing, though, I don't know that I've ever seen pictures of Prudhoe Bay. I think almost <laughs> everybody knows what Prudhoe Bay is because it's been such a political hotspot. But, you know, I don't I don't know that I've ever seen it. I have yeah. no idea what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely not the most beautiful place on Earth. It's uh it's a lot of tundra. And, uh, but when you drive up that Dalton Highway, you go through so many environments. And, and uh, that was just spectacular. Uh, everything from really densely forested areas to, through tundra, through flat areas, and the mountainous Brooks Range, uh, which were absolutely incredible. Uh, and so you see a lot, and including wildlife, muskox, grizzly bear, just on the side of the road. Neat stuff. So just for context, quickly tell us the gist of what your route was from Boston to get up there. Yeah, so the first place we stopped was in uh, Denver, Colorado. Uh, and that was because Zephyr at the time was dating uh, somebody who graduated from Tufts the year before him. And she lived uh, with her family in Denver. Uh, so we stopped there uh, to visit her. And uh, we uh, climbed a little bit around the area. We climbed on the uh, the Flatirons, which was a lot of fun. And uh, from there, we just headed north into the Canadian Rockies, spent some time in Canmore, Alberta. Uh, we stopped in the Bugaboos um, and then continued up through British Columbia, through the Yukon um, and up Alaska to Prudhoe Bay. And actually, after we uh, hit the north coast of Alaska, we turned around, went south, and Zephyr's family is actually from Sitka, which is in southeast Alaska. It's on Baranoff Island. So we drove down. Uh, you actually have to drive out of Alaska back through Canada to get to southeast Alaska. And we took a ferry from Haines, Alaska to Sitka, where Zephyr grew up, and I spent uh, about a month. Uh, with his family there. Oh man, sounds like a great trip. And I kind of did the opposite of that trip when I was uh, 17. I oh, went, yeah? yeah, I went from Vancouver across to Maine and down to Boston. So <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> anyway, it's kind of funny that, that way too. Um, I guess the what I would like to get into, there's so many things that pop up here. First of all, did you plan the trip out to be a to say, okay, we're going to go here and climb this. We're going to go there and try to climb that. We're going to go here and do this. Or was it more a matter of, we're going to go, man? 
Oh, it was a matter of we're going to go. Uh, we had very little plan. Uh, and I joke about this in the book. We packed everything but the kitchen sink. Uh, my Subaru was just really overflowing. Uh, it was a pretty hilarious picture that went around the internet uh, for a while of us unpacking all this stuff and just laying it out in the parking lot. And uh, we, besides from knowing we wanted to go through the Canadian Rockies and knowing we wanted to end up in Prudhoe Bay and, uh, and then go and visit Zephyr's family in Southeast Alaska, we had almost no plan and we just kind of followed where the good weather was, climbed some things here and there. Uh, and Zephyr and I are both very avid climbers. We've been doing it for a while uh, and we specialize more in kind of adventure uh, alpine climbing. Um, we're definitely not uh, athletic sport climbers by any means. So we were just kind of looking for beautiful, fun, uh, adventurous mountains to scramble around on. Man, I, I hear you there. I love that. I love that. That exploring mountains. And I, and when I say exploring, I have to be walking and hiking. You know what I mean? Yeah. But exploring mountains is one of my favorite things ever. So Another funny connection here is I accidentally climbed the first flat iron. How did you guys <laughs> climb it? <laughs> well, kind of almost in a similar fashion. We, um, the first flat iron, it's, it's not known as being a particularly difficult rock climb. Um, it's filled with a lot of very well um, established routes, uh, a lot of easy ways up the flat iron. Um, people free solo the thing every day. But, and so Zephyr and I just kind of showed up at the bottom of the thing. Like we didn't even plan which route we were going to go up. And uh, I think what we did want to climb, there was a long line of people to get on it. So we just decided, hell, we're going to just go up this way, whatever. And so we started meandering up and ended up very far off of anything. I think that was a climbing route and the rock started getting crumbly and there was really no place to, Put any protection and uh <laughs> so it, we, we definitely found a convoluted way up to the top uh, which is exactly what zephyr and i were in the business of doing it's just kind of looking for a convoluted adventure and that's what we love that's what i'm in love with as a outdoors person <laughs> that's funny your description and mine would be very similar the oh, one yeah. thing about the first flat iron is that if you were to fall it's not really fall it, it's a tumble for hundreds of feet yeah <laughs> right yeah Exactly. It's steep enough that you you can't just stop on it. But it, it it's tempting because you think, oh, I can almost get up that without having to be technical. But then right. you, you find out you have some pretty extreme exposure up there. Right, right. And what uh, the reason I included that uh, as a chapter in the book um, was actually because once we got to the top, uh, we got caught in a pretty bad uh, lightning storm, which is classic for Colorado. And... Uh, I have a history of getting stuck in lightning storms. And oh, I definitely yeah. had a little bit of a flashback to a few years prior. I was uh, in the Alps. I was on a hiking trip in the Alps and ended up just getting caught in this freak storm um, and had to spend two hours just in lightning position. And uh, now I hear that, that rumble, I always kind of flash back to that. And so I, I discussed... I discuss that kind of feeling um, when I'm up there in, in on the flat iron. It's just not and not very far from Boulder at all. It's it's not like I'm way out in the wilderness, but it can feel you know kind of isolating once that thunder rolls in. Uh, 
to have that little trigger point. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I hear you. So here at the adventure sports podcast, we're always promoting adventure and safety. And, um, but at the same time, we love the stories about when things didn't go as planned. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Well, they're great learning opportunities and and that's, as an outdoor educator, I've written extensively on risk management and and decision making processes, and I and I like to think I, I make very good decisions uh, in the Alpine. But the Alpine is also uh, a, a dangerous place, and things happen. And, and weather, uh, we we can't control weather. So uh, <laughs> sometimes things happen, and when you walk away, it, they're always great learning opportunities. Oh yeah. Well, as far as the first flat iron goes. Uh, my buddy and I made it to the top. We really didn't intend to free solo that thing, but we did. And uh, I wouldn't recommend it. I just have to say, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you know you're in over your head, but then there's not much turning back. And yeah. I, I really wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend doing it correctly with some protection and <laughs> ropes even. And even though it's, it's not super technical, the exposure is pretty darn extreme. But I would like for you to share with us um, the lightning storm story up there. I mean, what happened? Yeah, so, so well, up on the flat iron, it wasn't it, not a ton happened. It was just a lightning storm came through, and I was, you know, definitely uncomfortable about the situation. Got really wet and was uh, pretty over it. But um, when I think back to my first experience ever being in a lightning storm, and that was. That was in the Alps a, a few years before that, or it was only actually it was only uh, probably about a year and a half before that. I was terrified, and I was with my friend, and we were. It felt like we were in the middle of the storm clap, and I could hear trees going down. And it was it was quite a violent storm, and we were just on the balls of our feet, crouched down low, and making just small talk about our favorite colors or whatever, just to kind of <laughs> keep our minds off of it, but. Yeah, it was it was a scary experience, and like whenever I see a storm cloud coming now, I always kind of second guess myself and and get in my head a little bit, um, which is probably a good thing because it's it's you know, not a great idea to get stuck in a storm in the mountains. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I have several stories about running from lightning, hiding from lightning, waiting for the storm to pass over, and. It's a very strange experience, and I have to again say I wouldn't recommend it. But when you go through it, man, it it kind of leaves. Uh, I don't know. It, that experience for me has been powerful enough to kind of leave a big question mark yeah. in my memory. You know, what if? <laughs> what yeah, if- and, and I'm sorry. The, uh, the the chapter on the flat irons, I think, is is really just the start of the reflection in the book. Um, you know, that's the point where I start taking everything that's going on and reflecting back on what has happened before and, and a lot of the challenges I'd had to overcome. And it was also a point in the book where there was a lot of tension between Zephyr and his girlfriend. Uh, they, their relationship was definitely falling apart and uh, they were taking a break from each other right after that. And so Zephyr and I were in similar places, losing people that we really cared a lot about. Mm. I think that happens a lot around that time period in college too. You know, some people meet in college and then they go the same way. Other people meet in college and go different ways. And that's, yeah, it it happens. It it really does. And it happens all throughout life. People just go separate ways. But 
when it happens at the time and and you're just pissed off and you just want to get away and and you're with your best friend who's also going through that there's a lot of emotional energy yeah no doubt so from there you headed north right yeah from there we headed to uh Camora, Alberta which i think was really the first major stop of this this trip is uh we spent um a couple weeks there uh and yeah, we we definitely partied around town a little bit too much and uh, got into the mountains a little bit as well and met a lot of really great friends that I'm still in touch with today there. So here's a question for you. I think it's really common for people to think about a big trip, especially if they're planning it long enough in advance, and they kind of get a set of expectations. What will it be like, you know? And we, we like to presuppose what our experiences will be and what the impact will be and all that kind of stuff. But when you actually go on the trip, then life usually deals you a different hand than you expected. But still we learn and we grow. So can you kind of do that for us? You expected something from this trip. That's why you went. And at this point, now you're, you've traveled, oh boy, probably almost 3,000 miles, something like that. And you've had some amazing experiences along the way. But is it starting to pan out to be the trip you expected? Well, uh... Zephyr and I knew each other very well, um, and we are very similar people, and we get along super well. Um, but I think what I didn't expect was the tension that would come up between us uh, just by sleeping in the trunk of a car together every day, <laughs> sharing the small space, um, only really hanging out with each other every single day uh, as we're traveling. And so there, these little micro arguments would come up. And I think uh, that contributed to a lot of the anxiety I started to feel throughout this trip. And, and my book dives into that uh, and, and the struggles, the, the tug of war that we experienced as friends um, and how we found that in the wilderness, it, it is a therapeutic place. It's a great place to run away to, but it also has the potential to push and pull at your emotions. Mm, yeah, I can see that for sure. I think any time that people are pushed together into close quarters for an extended period of time, um, well, the, the real people come out, you know, yeah. <laughs> life gets a little bit tough that you can't really fake it anymore. <laughs> Who you really are is what starts to show and learning how to navigate that together. I mean, you already mentioned still your best friend. So did the trip make you guys uh, have an even better friendship? Yeah, um, I, I definitely think so. But but here's the thing. It was a roller coaster at the time. I think there were times when I just wanted to strangle Zephyr and Zephyr was pissed off at me. And uh, we there were times when I think we probably the best thing to do would have been to take some space from each other. Um, but you know, after this trip ended, we 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 took some time away from each other. We, we stopped talking for probably about six months, really, which is. I can't even believe it now because I can't go a few days without talking. <laughs> right. But, but, uh, but what I realized, especially writing this book and thinking about what happened between us and uh, reflecting, I realized just how really great of a friend he is. Um, we were both going through some shit. We both had emotions and we were both struggling in different aspects of our lives. And because of that, I think, me especially, I had an attitude on that trip. And 
Zephyr put up with that in a way that I think a lot of friends wouldn't have. Um, and there's not a doubt in my mind that we didn't walk away from that being a really strong duo. If you want to get into backpacking, but you're not sure where to start, go check out campcrate.net. Campcrate can help you plan the backpacking trip of a lifetime and supply you with all the rental gear you need. Simply go online and choose your gear and your itinerary. Campcrate will then ship your gear anywhere in the U.S. When your trip is finished, use the pre-printed return label to ship the gear back. It's that easy. Campcrate. Rent. Explore. Return. By now, you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Well, you mentioned climbing in Alberta. Uh, relate to us a story about what you climbed and how that went. So the favorite mountain I climbed in Alberta is this uh, mountain called Hawling, uh, and it's right near the town of Canmore. Uh, you can see it from right downtown, and there's a route up it. It's it's only rated five six. Um, it's about twelve pitches, so it's really long, um, beautiful views, uh, and moderate climbing. And that's kind of what Zephyr and I were in the mood for. Um, and Holland gets exciting because it is kind of hard to find the route. There's a lot of stray gear, uh, and the rock is very crumbly. Uh, the entire way, the entire way, just rock was coming down on us. Uh, and I, uh, at one point, was probably about 20 feet above my last piece of protection. So uh, a fall at that point would have been very large. And um, there were quite a few ledges on that route, so it would have been quite bad. And all of a sudden, I hear just everybody below me yell, yell rock at the top of their lungs. And I, uh, I knew not to look up and I knew it was about to hit me. And when it did, it just exploded on my helmet, hits oh. both of my shoulders, kind of like almost knocks the wind out of me for a second. I'm just so shaken up with the adrenaline. And I just have my right hand gripping onto this big hold, uh, right about my head level. And I'm looking at my hand, just don't let go. You can't let go. Uh, and it did, it did hurt quite a bit, but kind of pushed through with the adrenaline, got to the next fillet, clipped in, and took a deep breath and just thought, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wasn't awesome, but um, 
I, I, I love that climb. It's one of my favorite climbs that I've ever done uh, just because it's so long, 12 pitches of, of very moderate climbing um, and it's exciting climbing. There's a lot going on. It's not just, it's not just a walk in the park. It does require uh, quite a bit of thought um, because the protection is not all there. Mm. Well, Ari, you've mentioned two kind of what could be life-threatening experiences already, and we're just getting started here. So is this a common theme? Well, I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, in the mountains, um, and I spent very little time um, doing day hikes and doing uh, going cragging at like a local rock climbing crag. So I, I think it's just the reality of spending a lot of time up in the mountains and in places that have higher consequences but look, there's there's risk in in everything uh, that you do every day, and I think it's if, if you look back on your life, you're going to have a lot of close calls just from you know walking across the street, or uh, you know sometimes using power tools and being in the mountains so much. These things happen, and they make good stories. And so, I, yeah, I tell the stories about the times that I've I've <laughs> been in scary situations. Uh, and I think what I don't tell enough of are the stories about the times that I've turned around, because I really think that my best skill as an alpine climber is bailing. Mm. Uh, I, I bail more times than I can count. Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's surprising to people how many times I'll go out and I'll hike for 30 miles to get to the bottom of a climb climb for like five minutes, say, oh, the weather's rolling in or, hey, I'm not feeling it and just turn around. And deep down it sucks, but at this point I'm not phased by it. And I, I remember I went climbing with somebody a few months ago. We were in uh, the North Cascades and we did just that. We had this long bushwhacky approach. We get there, weather rolls in, can't do the climb. I'm like, okay, let's just turn around, whatever. And she's so bummed, so bummed. And I, to me, that's just the reality of alpine climbing. Yeah, I agree with you, man. And matter of fact, I'll take it the next step. We've interviewed some of the best expedition climbers on the planet, and the really good ones are the ones who've turned around the most. Um, and they're the ones that are still alive, by the way, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's not about the summit. It's about the whole experience, and the summit is kind of the bonus you know, it's the icing on the cake, so to speak. When you do summit, you get to have that experience. That's wonderful. It's glorious. But you can have such a wonderful experience without ever even getting close to the summit. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, a lot of people, and especially people who don't uh, participate in this kind of outdoor recreation very frequently, uh, it's, it's hard to uh, differentiate the experience from the summit. And uh, that was a lesson I think my dad learned a couple years ago. He had always wanted to climb Mount Rainier. And a couple years ago, I said, hey, you know, why don't you just tag along? We can go climb Mount Rainier. And uh, I brought him on a rope team with a couple friends. And we ended up turning around at like 13,000 feet. So Ooh. we really weren't too far from the summit. But it was there was a hailstorm going on. It just wasn't a pleasant place to be. And I didn't mind. It was just a normal decision to make. And I think he saw that he saw, oh, wow, like this is a challenge that goes far beyond my physical ability to climb this mountain because he totally could have made it to the top, but we couldn't have in that particular storm. Yeah, exactly. And if you keep going, sometimes you get away with it and sometimes you don't. Yeah. And 
You know, it's just not worth it. I, a buddy and I climbed Mount Princeton this summer. And the reason I bring it up is because that mountain turned us around probably 18 years ago in a snowstorm. Uh, in the wintertime, we tried to climb it, and it turned us around. We went back down and had a story to tell, and so we summited together like 18 years later. We looked at the place where we turned around, and it was kind of like, wow, I'm kind of glad we got turned around, because now that, that that peak has that much more meaning to us, and we have two memories, and you know, it's kind of like, oh, I beat us once, but we got it the next time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and and I love telling stories and I find some of the best stories come from those moments when you turn around, you're not successful. Uh, it's really easy to just say, Oh yeah, we climbed it. It went really well. We got to the top. It was beautiful. We turned around, <laughs> right. but, but to bring a story to life, there needs to be uh, something that has to be conquered. I think. And, and uh, the idea of conquering mountains is very nearsighted because you just can't last very long on a mountain. Right. Uh, you have to turn around eventually anyways. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, you might make it to the summit and back down again and have some wonderful stories to tell. But if you were to stay up there, <laughs> you would eventually be in trouble regardless, right? Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, for anybody that's interested in reading my book, it's not a, it's not a book about success necessarily. There's, there's a lot of failure uh, and a lot of struggle, uh, I think, as far as interpersonal relationships go, as, as far as uh, my um, personal uh mental health and and just even getting out into the mountains there's there's so many times that we turned around because something went wrong mm. so kind of a personal question here but sometimes when people are going through emotionally challenging times maybe their judgment gets knocked to the side a little bit or maybe they take bigger risks on purpose because they're looking for i don't know they're looking for an experience that's bigger than what they're going through maybe yeah. Do you think you were in there somewhere? I don't think so. And I don't think that's been a pattern in my life. Um, and like many people, I've gone through periods where I've struggled with depression and, and uh, anxiety. And when I go through those periods in my life, I just don't even want to climb. And that's the biggest struggle for me to overcome is even wanting to go outside. Uh, and so I, I haven't been in a place where I pushed myself too far because I wasn't of sound judgment. I find when I do push myself, it's because I'm in a really good headspace and I trust myself and I'm ready because I prepared to do something that I think is a, a bigger challenge. I think that's a good point. You know, for a long time on the Adventure Sports Podcast, we've been talking about how nature can heal, how getting out can uh, bring a lot of health, right? But we have to have sound judgment. And I'm kind of with you, too. I, I have my off days. and When I'm having an off day, I'm more likely to walk away from a challenge than I am to try to take it on. Uh, but at the same time, as you did you know, travel through the United States and Canada and back through Alaska when you're facing all the challenges of getting along with Zephyr when you're both just stressed out, right? Um, where did the healing come in? Yeah, so that's kind of the interesting thing about the name of my book is because it's really not that straightforward. Uh, I Nothing gets healed in the book. Um, it's about finding the place where you can heal. 
And I think that the wilderness is often romanticized as the only answer to struggles. Um, and for many people, it's, it's a huge answer. Getting outside has changed many people's lives. But for me, at least, it wasn't the only answer. It was just the first step in starting to get to know myself and uh, the first step in learning how to be earnest with myself. And one of the biggest messages from my book is telling people that it's okay to ask for help um, because I don't want to give away too much, but that was something that I've always struggled with. I didn't know that it was okay to ask for help when when you're depressed. And I thought I just needed to run away from my problems. And honestly, it created this tug of war between my best friend and me and the wilderness and me and my perception of the romanticism of the wilderness, uh, just fighting the rawness of the wilderness. And for me, the whole trip, I think, was rather unstable, but I was able to walk away from it prepared to start healing. Oh, that's cool. So it, instead of providing the healing necessarily, it put you in the place where you were ready for it. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I think the wilderness does have a, a powerful um, position to be able to heal many people who are struggling, um, but it can't do that for everyone. I don't think that it's. Um, I don't think it's a fair thing to say that the wilderness alone. Uh, can solve a lot of these big problems, but it can be one step to, uh, towards finding a solution towards growing as a person. Um, and for me, it really wasn't all that I needed. Uh, and so I had to go on this long trip to start to get to know myself and, and understand and reflect on what I had been going through. All right. Well, what other types of adventures and climbs did you have after Alberta? Uh, we went to the Bugaboos, which is now my favorite place on earth, uh, Bugaboo Provincial Park in, in British Columbia. Uh, it's just this alpine climbing mecca, huge playground with these big granite spires that are coming out of uh, these, uh, these beautiful glaciers. Um, it's a truly wild place and some of the best alpine climbing, I think, in North America. And that was the first time Zephyr and I had been there, and we went um, shoulder season, which means it was uh, it was earlier than the prime time climbing uh, period in the summer, um, but right after the too snowy to climb winter. So there was still quite a bit of snow up there, but there weren't a lot of people. And um, we ended up doing the West Ridge of Pigeon Spire, which is known as... Um, one of the best five fours in the world. And five four is not a difficult grade. It's easier than any climb you could really find in a climbing gym. Um, but there's something really special about the West Ridge of Pigeon Spire because it flows together beautifully. The rock is in great condition uh, and the views the whole way are just really spectacular. Uh, the, the British Columbian wilderness um, there's just nothing like it. And the exposure you can get on a climb of that rating is really unparalleled. So I loved it. And that's when I fell in love with the bugaboos. Um, you know, it's, it's just, 
It's just in, this place is out of the world, out of this world. Man, you make me want to go there. <laughs> so <laughs> you should. Yeah, it sounds amazing. You know, I was thinking about also as you were telling that you know a five four, and you, it's like, well, that's that's a pretty easy climb and all of that. You know, the fourteeners in Colorado, you can do a five ten pitch if you want to, but you can get up all of them without having to do any technical climbing. There are a couple that have a, a couple of cruxes you have to get through, but the reality is they're not that technically difficult. But that has little to do with the experience. The experience is what the mountain's trying to tell you or what you're able to perceive from, you know, the weather and and the exertion and, and how it challenges you personally. Um, somehow to me, that's different than just technical rock climbing, which I also do. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm in the same position. I've uh, been climbing for a while now, and you know, I like to think I'm pretty good at it. And I've climbed in the Bugaboos five times since since uh, this this story happened, and uh, but this book is just not about you know how great a rock climber I am. I don't want people to care about that. Uh, this book is just about a personal journey, and uh, I think that you know it, it would be silly to focus on the, the, the climbs that I did and be like, oh, well, he only climbed the five four, only he only climbed the five six, because that's what I climb in this book, because that's what I was climbing at that period in my life. But that's not the focus of this story. It's just about my experience and the growth I took away. And I, I find that, you know, that period of my life when I just loved climbing 5.4 because I couldn't get enough of it because I could get to these just wonderful, inaccessible places just by doing a little bit of extra scrambling and bringing a rope and some climbing gear. Uh, that's really important to me. Oh, Yeah. I think it's a, a beautiful place to be, no matter how good you are at being a technical climber. If it's not about the love of the mountains and the love of being out there and interacting with it, then I don't know. Yeah, well, I think it's something some people get and, and, and a lot of people don't. And I have friends that are just diehard gym climbers, and that's awesome. They climb way harder than I ever will. Um, and they don't understand. They're like, oh, well, what would you do up there? And I say, yeah, I did this route, this route, and that And they're like, oh, but there's only, there's only a 5.8. Like, why'd you bother doing that? And it's like, because it was an <laughs> awesome climb. Like, you just, <laughs> you have to do it, and, and, and it's an awesome climb. And, and then I have friends that can climb 5.13 uh, with their hands tied behind their back, and they love the West Ridge of Pigeon Spire. They've done it, like, 20 times. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you got to be there to, to really feel it, or read the book. And <laughs> Well, tell you what, when you got to the top, of Pigeon Spire. Take us there. Describe what the summit experience was like. Well, the summit was really snowy at the time that we did it. So there wasn't a lot of rock climbing just to, for that last pitch. And, and the last pitch is usually kind of the quote-unquote crux pitch uh, where it, the route actually gets its 5-4 rating. So there's a couple technical, more technical moves where the rest of the climb's a lot of scrambling. And, uh, but that was all covered in snow. So I was just punching my fists <laughs> into the snow. I placed no protection, uh, get to the top, lay Zephyr up. And, and we were really happy. And I think, you know, a few days before we, we were probably both pretty sad, um, in town. Um, and the weather hadn't been so great and we'd had a couple fights as friends. And, but being together on top of that mountain, you just look out and you can't see anything besides mountains and glaciers. And 
uh, we were the only two up there, and we brought in, like a little American flag that Zephyr had stuffed into his pocket. And so we took selfies on the summit, and we were just joking around about bringing our American flag up there because, of course, we were in uh, Canada. Uh, and yeah, it was just a really happy moment for both of us. That's fun. And those are the moments we remember, too, I think. And they're not always the most amazing thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. Instead, it's like, no, that was a good moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's actually kind of funny you say that because I guess I will always remember that moment. It's always in my head, but I don't talk about it too much. I talk about it a little bit in the book because I was forced to sit down and remember everything that happened, and I talked about it now because you asked me about it. But I think the story that I tell most frequently from that trip uh, was when we were walking back across the glacier, Zephyr uh, actually ended up slipping into a, a little crevasse and uh, he fell down to his waist. He was totally fine. We got him out, but it was a spooky moment. And uh, so, yeah, even though I'll always remember that, that good moment, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is oftentimes the, the one that's uh will keep people more on the edge of their seat. Yeah, no doubt. You know, people love the stories that are a little bit scarier, like the lightning struck nearby, or I almost fell into this crevasse. So what was that like when he did slip into this thing? Were you guys freaked, or what happened? Yeah, well, the, the glacier uh, in the bugaboos there, some people rope up for it, a lot of people don't, and uh, it's it's very benign. There's there's some cracks in it, but they're very small, and, and like I said, Zephyr plunged his foot into one, and he fell to his waist. And he wasn't going to fit <laughs> anymore into that thing. But it was one of those moments where we kind of realized that carelessness is possible and that we just weren't paying attention. He wasn't paying attention to where he was stepping. It was it was uh, it was a hole right there. And he put his foot right into it. And that was you know, it's the end of a long day. It happens. Um, but. that could have happened on a larger scale and that's the scary thing um so that was just a small moment of reflection and in kind of an example of what i like to call the debrief in outdoor education is uh at the end of every trip no matter how well it went uh just take a moment think about maybe micro things that went wrong and certain things that went well and why they went well uh and you know, learning how we can be better uh, the next time we head out into the mountains. So that was just really just a little thing that happened, and, and we laughed about it, and I ended up, like, just jumping over the crevasse, and I was like, ooh, that was a little spooky, but it was no big deal. But also, at the same time, you have to stop and take a deep breath and say to yourself, well, maybe we were being a little too airheaded right there. You know, yeah. where we are walking across the glacier. Lessons learned, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. So after the bugaboos, then what? Uh, then we, the weather uh, turned pretty bad in, in British Columbia. And so we just decided, oh, we'll just keep driving up through Alaska. And, and that's when we made our way up to Prudhoe Bay. And so we weren't doing a ton of climbing uh, at that point. Just a lot of driving and just being tourists, kind of looking out the window and enjoying wildlife and whatnot. Um, but I think we were pretty, pretty wiped uh, emotionally and, and also physically just from you know, the climbing we had been doing up to that point and the drama that we had been uh, experiencing as friends. Uh, so we, just, we, were, we were pretty quiet and doing a lot of driving and 
and I'm enjoying the sights along the way. And once we got up to Alaska, we were just, oh, to the north coast of Alaska anyways, we were kind of just like, well, this is, this is it. <laughs> and we turned around and went uh, uh, back to, we went down to the southeast Alaska, uh, where we spent uh, the rest of the summer. Well, this, and I know that some of the listeners are saying, well, I want to hear more about Alaska. I mean, they, you went through central Alaska, and then you ended up on the western southern coast of Alaska. Um just give us a quick rundown. What was Alaska like for you? Yeah. A lot of people ask me what I think of Alaska or like, how's Alaska? And Alaska is huge and it's very different everywhere you go. So, it, you know, there have been, there are many places in Alaska that I do not like because they're just kind of boring. And there are many parts of Alaska that are just absolutely incredibly beautiful. Um, and we, we made a few um, major stops, in particular in Alaska. Uh, we stopped in Anchorage to visit uh, a close friend of ours. She's a raft guide. Uh, her name's Emily. And uh, we climbed a little bit in Hatcher Pass, which is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, in, in Alaska, the rock quality is not very good. Uh, it's not, not a great rock climbing destination. A lot of incredible alpine climbing. But in Hatcher Pass, we actually found some really good, uh, really good rock. Uh, it was quite enjoyable, just casual day climbs. And uh, then the next big thing happened uh, in this small little village called McCarthy, Alaska. Uh, our friend Gabe, who we went to college with, he was uh, working as a guide uh, for, for in in, uh, in McCarthy, and he was guiding clients out onto the glacier there, uh, taking them ice climbing in in. Uh, some of the on, on the ice features on the glacier. Um, so Zephyr and I go in to visit him and actually quite a bit of drama happened there. Uh, the biggest thing was that there was an accident with um, my camp stove and Zephyr was cooking with it and uh, he was trying to make coffee. He put the French press attachment in and he caught up in some banter. He forgot to turn the flame off, which ended up boiling a lot of the grounds into the French press filter, creating a pressure vessel, which proceeded to explode in his face. Oh, no. And, yeah, so that was not good. And uh, <laughs> we got him bandaged up. He, he, uh, he had some pretty bad burns on his shoulders and, and not so great burns on his face. And he was very unhappy. Uh, I do not blame him. Um, but we got him lathered in aloe, all wrapped up. And Zephyr and I decided, okay, we, let's just get out of McCarthy. Um, I turn on my car and I realize my gas light's on. Uh, <laughs> there's no gas station in McCarthy. This is, this place is 60 miles down a dirt road from the nearest town. Uh, it's just a little village where people, where these guide companies exist. Um, and so, uh, our friend Gabe was like, well, maybe I can get you some like chainsaw gas. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work. So, uh, we decided, oh, it's 60 miles down a dirt road. Like, maybe my car can make it. And, <laughs> Fortunately, it did, but uh, talk about white-knuckle driving. I've never been so gripped on a steering wheel. Zephyr had his face just pressed up against the air vents trying to keep it cool. Uh, We finally get out of uh, McCarthy. We swing by the gas station. I don't know how my car made it. Fill up. We're starving. So we go into this uh, small little restaurant across the, uh, the street, and we open the doors, 
walk in and just everybody's heads turned towards us because Zephyr's got his face wrapped up like a mummy at this point and he's got a hat on on top of it just holding all the bandages together <laughs> uh, it definitely didn't look like a, a kind of a medical job that would have come straight out of a hospital it was uh, it was definitely some backwoods alaskan medicine and so we uh <laughs> sat down the waitress kind of comes over she's a little uh, like unsure of the situation and zephyr's like uh, i need a beer and so the waitress just turns to him, I'm assuming you're going to need a straw for that. And so <laughs> there he is sitting, just sipping his beer with a straw through this little, tiny little hole in his uh, face wrap. And it was really rather pathetic. But uh, the good news is all his burns healed well. Uh, besides the burns on his shoulders, he does have a little bit of scarring. But that was, uh, <laughs> that was definitely Zephyr's low point in the <laughs> entire trip. Man, that does not sound like fun. And you know, it always seems like when one challenging situation pops up, there's going to be more. They're going to try to compound it, you know, like almost running out of gas. And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just keep looking to the next person like, when's the next thing going to go wrong? Right. Oh, but you got through it. And oh, yeah. then, uh, so you went back down um, to southern Alaska and after that, was it driving all the way back to Boston or what happened? Uh, so Zephyr grew up in this town called Sitka, uh, Alaska. It's on Baranoff Island. Um, it's a neat little community. And uh, so I ended up staying with his family there for about a month. And we ended up going on a 10-day uh, sea kayaking uh, adventure together. And it was, it was really spectacular. And I, I really hate water sports. And I just... My entire life, I've always gotten seasick easily, and I don't like being cold and wet, but Zephyr convinced me to join him on this sea kayaking trip, and we went um, to a neighboring island in southeast Alaska, and uh, we were able to camp uh, in all this wilderness area uh, and kind of kayak through these beautiful coves, uh, saw so much wildlife, lots of whales, um, tons of uh, sea lions, and it was just yeah, absolutely spectacular. The Southeast Alaskan coast, it's just hard to explain. You got to go. Uh, mountains just coming right out of the ocean. It's so green um, and, and truly wild. You do not see many people. Uh, every once in a while, a fishing boat comes by and you like, wave at them like, oh, my God, another person. Look at that. <laughs> and, uh, um, so Zephyr and I, uh, about five days into this trip, the weather um, started to turn bad as, you know, this is a common theme in this book, but in Southeast Alaska, the, the weather is quite volatile. And, uh, we ended up with um, some pretty large waves that kept us ashore. And at the time we had been camping on this very tiny little Island, probably about the size of a football field. And, um, we kind of started to go a little crazy after a few days. We ended up spending a total of four days, uh, on the island before we were able to get picked up by Zephyr's family friend. Um, and yeah, Zephyr pretty much sure spent the entire time just trying to keep a fire going, staring into it, and, uh, not really saying much. And I just paced laps around the island singing Frank Sinatra to, to myself. And, <laughs> 
we, we made some small talk here and there. We ended up like fighting on the beach physically. Uh, we were just no holds barred going at each other until I <laughs> finally tapped out. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's funny. It was only four days on this island, but we were trapped and it was pretty isolating because it was a tiny little island. Clouds kind of socked us in so you couldn't see much of anything. And it was, it was one of those moments where you're like, I gotta get out of here. Even though I was in one of the most beautiful places on earth, you know, I just had to get out of there. But, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely a challenge of, uh, of kind of staying above the, the wild thoughts I was having in my mind at the time, you know, being, being that isolated in the wilderness. But, uh, it was beautiful. It was, it was pretty spectacular. And then once I got back to Sitka, um, from that trip, that's when I decided to drive back to the East Coast, and uh, and Zephyr ended up staying there with his family. Um, so I drove back the six six and a half days alone <laughs> back to the Northeast, which uh, which was quite the drive to do solo. <laughs> oh yeah, no, just driving down British Columbia took as long as driving across the United States. <laughs> of course, man, it's a big continent when you do it that way. It really is. Well, what are the takeaways from the trip? I mean, I know you learned a lot, and like we already discussed, you know, that our expectations aren't always met, but when you reflect on it, what are some of the things that you'd say, you know what, this is something I'm going to take with me for the rest of my life? I think um, I want people to read this and think about their perception of the wilderness and think about their perception of going outside and also reflect on a lot of other things they've read about um, people's experiences in the outdoors. And what is, throughout the book, I question uh, a lot of the classical writers um, that have lifted the outdoors up on a pedestal. And I have to ask myself, is that harmful to the outdoor community? Does that make the outdoors seem like they are incredibly inaccessible? And at the end of the day, maybe the outdoors is just in our backyard or in the park down the street from where we live. Uh, maybe it's just some dilapidated shack that our friends like to hang out in in the woods. Um, it can be found everywhere. Uh, and we can learn how to experience it in many different ways. And so it's one thing that as a writer that I always kind of struggle with is not telling people how to experience the wilderness, but how I experienced mm. the wilderness. Sure. Yeah. And, and I want people to to kind of reflect on their experience and 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 tie it into mine and, and just think about, you know, is the wilderness this romantic place? that we often think about it, or is there also a rawness to it? Is it also a challenge uh, to overcome certain aspects of our own selves when we're in the wilderness? And is it enough to just kind of run away to the wilderness, or do we need to also seek help in other places? Um, for me, at least, being out there, being outside, it's a passion of mine, and it's a place where my, my mind clears up, and I was able to... Uh, clear my mind up enough to walk away and say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm depressed right now. I need help. 
And I, I'm definitely grateful that I was able to do that and able to get that help because I think a lot of people are scared of that. And it took me many years of being scared to reach out for help, uh, thinking that it, it was something that made me weak um, to finally overcome that, that fear and be confident enough uh, to get the help I needed. And so this is just kind of a story about how I got there. Awesome. Well, good for you, man. So the name of the book, again, is Where the Wind Heals, Ari Schneider, and that's A-R-I-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, right? Yep, you got it. And so Ari on Instagram, it's Ari underscore Schneider. Facebook is Ari Joseph Schneider. And how else can people find the book or get more information? So the book is available uh, on uh, Barnes and Noble's website at Amazon.com, and also uh, wherever books are sold. Um, and you know, if you like it, the one, the, the biggest thing you can do to support this book is ask your local bookstore to carry it. It is distributed globally, so uh, uh, any bookstore should be able to get it uh, in stock. And uh, if you want to reach me. You can send me an email, contact at arijosephschneider.com. Uh, and I really look forward to hearing feedback. If, uh, if anybody out there, anyone listening reads it, I'd love to hear what you think. Well, Ari, I, for one, really enjoyed listening to your story about this. And I think that you have a lot of insights that are really meaningful. Um, even the insight of, well, the woods didn't fix me, but it got me ready. You know, that yeah. kind of thing. and. I, I, I would love to read through this book and, and kind of, I guess, benefit from some of the hard work that you did. You know what I mean? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I hope, uh, I hope you find it meaningful. I, I don't think everybody's going to love it, and that's not why you create a piece of art. But uh, I, I hope people read it and they think a little bit. If, if, if somebody walks away from reading this book and has thought a little bit about uh, the wilderness and their role in it, then my goal has been achieved. Very cool. Well, again, the book is Where the Wind Heals. And Ari, thanks so much for your time today. You got it. It was great talking to you. Yeah, you too, man. And for all the listeners out there, get out there and have some fun. And it might be a trip like this. It might not. But sometimes it takes a trip of this magnitude, I think. It's a life experience that really makes a difference. So until the next show, figure out what your fun is and do it. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and be sure to tell all your friends about the show. Everybody deserves a little adventure. Until the next episode, get out there and try something new.